Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I work with the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space, both online and in person, for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. This podcast and other expressions of the Academy ministry only exist because of generous donors like you. As the strange and revealing year of 2020 comes to a close, please give a gift of 25, 50, or any amount to ensure our work continues for many years to come. Visit us at academy.upperroom.org and click the orange donate button in the top right corner of your screen to give a gift today. Today's episode is a compilation of the best moments of 2020 from my podcast conversations with Lisa Yaboa, Dan Wolpert, Ben Boswell, Amos DeSasa, Frank Rogers, M. Barclay, Lenicia Rouse, and Amy Stroop. Of course, we hosted many more conversations than these in 2020 with our Academy leaders and friends. Conversations that challenged us to act, opened us to joy, and reminded us that justice and mercy are the children of love. The excerpts from conversations in this Best Of podcast are just a few of our favorites, many of them memorable moments that changed our own thinking, feeling, and being in the world. In the end, we're simply grateful. Grateful we can hold this space for holy and healing conversation, Grateful we can talk about hard things, real things, big things. Grateful we can show up again and again in the presence of the Holy One, asking to be transformed for the healing and transformation of the world. Listen on, beloveds. Listen well. Listen deep. Listen wide. These first four excerpts come from my conversations with Lisa Yaboa, Dan Wolpert, Ben Boswell, and Amos DeSasa. I held each of these conversations in early June, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As protests raged across the country, as exasperation settled into our hearts, we came together to talk and to listen. A quick reminder of who these folks are. Lisa is pastor of Southeast Raleigh Table, a worshiping community of faith that shows up, speaks in the language of blessing, disarms with beauty, trusts in the power of prayer, and thinks big. Dan is Academy faculty, Upper Room Books author, Upper Room e-learning facilitator and teacher, executive director and co-founder of MICA, the Minnesota Institute for Contemplation and Healing, spouse, partner, ally, activist, dad. Ben is a two-year Academy alum and senior pastor of Myers Park Baptist Church 
in Charlotte, North Carolina. In addition to his pastoral responsibilities and as an extension of them, he facilitates anti-racism trainings for white dominant congregations called What Does It Mean to Be White? And to complete this first section of the best of, we have a clip from my conversation with Amos DeSasa, who is senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Dallas, Texas. Son to Ethiopian immigrants, a native of South Carolina, and an advocate of the poor and marginalized, Amos is pastor, prophet, and priest embodied. Well, you know, the Academy is so much about the inner and the outer and so much of what I'm hearing you talk about right now is doing that inner work. Mm. I heard you say that about, okay, the work of anti-racism is waking up every day day. and looking inward, asking the hard questions, being honest about that so that whatever it is we are doing outward, um, actually is grounded and rooted in a place yeah. of trust and a place yeah. of exploration and a place of compassion and yeah. kindness. And um, so thank you uh, for, yeah. for reminding us of that and um, highlighting that. And I wonder if you might just say a little bit more about the dance of spirituality and justice mm. uh, contemplation and action Mm. and particularly in these days where it is a revolution. Yeah. Um, And as we know, Audre Lorde saying (laughs) revolution is not a one-time event. Um, No, no, uh, but, but Audre Lorde also said that self-care is a, it's a, um, oh my gosh, is an act of resistance. Yeah. You know, so um, when we, when we lay down, when we lay down our spiritual practices, then I don't know, I can't trust what you're going to pick up. <laughs> like, and you know, if you look at the, if you look at the great, some of the great leaders within social movements, Mother Teresa, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, one thing that we will find is that in seasons when they're, when some of their spiritual practices were waning thin is when they also felt like they were waning thin when discretions happened, when the sense of like um, self-forgetting or uh, um, a, ma- a major distance from feeling a major distance or breach with God happened in those, in those moments. And it's not to say that we, we can be praying every single day and still feel far away from God. So I'm not, I'm not um, saying that somehow they were doing something wrong, but they would have, com- they even confessed, these greats confessed that when they felt spiritually distant, that it affected the ways in which they showed up uh, in, um, in the work that they did. I love that in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe in social holiness and also personal piety, and we don't take one over the other. We don't, we don't rank them. It's collaborative. See, even Wesley oh, yeah. collaborative models. Um, it was collaborative. And what I would say is that when you are praying, 
when you are tending to the means of grace, when you are in community with others, when you um, are in small groups that are, people are asking you um, hard questions and holding you accountable, when you are feasting on Jesus in whatever Eucharistic means you need, when you are resting and believing that your rest is resistance and taking time for Sabbath and recognizing that you're not going to be the one who's going to make the system come down, but it's the power of God within you that might bring the system down and that God is God, whether you are wearing pajamas or you are, you know, dressed to the nines, um, that you, you didn't breathe into God, the breath of life, that God breathed into you, the breath of life. And so you're going to cease and desist and rest. When you do those things, guess what? You become just. And then I will trust that you're going to do work to make the world just. But if I see you popping off in your family, if I see you beating and abusing your body, if I see you being inhumane with yourself because you are not leaning and attending to spiritual practices, I cannot trust the work you're going to do out in the world. How do I know how you'll treat other people's bodies? How do I know how you're going to use your words? How will I know that you're not overcompensating for the ways in which you don't care for yourself? Personal piety makes you just within yourself. When I rest, I say I love myself. So that way, when I'm out in the world and I'm cradling someone's child or I'm advocating, um, I'm advocating for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the Ahmaud Arbery's in the world, for the kids in my neighborhood, for the people that I love, for um, the, the mother who is, you know, just stressed and anxious about their child, they can trust uh, what, how I'm trying to be at work in the world because they can trust how God is at work in me. But I think when you start to divorce spiritual practices from what you're up to in the world, I will tell you very quickly, I just, I mean, I've actually had this conversation with um, some of my um, activist friends. Like, I stopped trusting you when on a micro level, you're not living out the, the very things that you want to happen on a macro level. And I think our spiritual disciplines, I mean, even silence and solitude, um, our spiritual practices help us to be, to show up differently in the world. It's, it's how I know that you're not just going to go be with those kids for a photo op. Right. Because you are doing um, the examine. And so I know you're asking yourself hard questions. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that our, I think personal piety helps us to be just to ourselves and then social holiness helps us to be just in the world. But if you don't do both, um, and I would also say that personal piety would make you say, if I'm just in myself, why would I not want it to overflow? So it can't be like, it's just me and Jesus. We just chilling. It's like, no, what does justice look like? And justice might look like the way in which you show up for your children could be the way in which you are, um, cause you are raising kids who are anti-racist or you're raising kids who don't, uh, patriarchy hasn't seeped into their bones. You're raising children who are like joy, unspeakable joy for other people. Um, yeah. yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean marching, but it needs to mean something. So speaking of that, you do live, I think, what, two blocks from where George Floyd was killed? Yes, yes, and two blocks from... Yeah, tell us uh, what that's like, um, what it's like mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, what it's like for you 
personally, as a person of faith, as a person uh, very much interested in the whole of the spiritual life, Mm -hmm. uh, what are you observing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, so this has been an incredibly intense week. Uh, As you said, we live two blocks away from where he was killed uh, on a corner that we go up to all the time. you know, we go by Lemons at the store uh, where he was at and uh, half and half when we run out of it. Uh, my favorite barbecue place is two doors down. Uh, it's the bus stop where we get on the bus to go downtown or my wife gets on the bus to go to work. Uh, so, you know, this is our, our home, our neighborhood. And uh, what has gone on here the past week is, has really been incredible. Uh, the the uprising uh, has been incredibly intense, powerful, uh, very dramatic. A uh, lot going on. Uh, and if people are are interested in more of that, uh, I maintain a pretty robust Facebook presence, and I've actually been biking around town, uh, all to all the major sites, and uh, doing these little live video feeds. I've been doing a lot of writing. And that started last Wednesday, I believe. And, and they're all public, so you don't have to be a friend of mine on Facebook. And you can just mm-hmm. go uh, check those out and watch me ride through the smoke and fires and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that, uh, for me, contemplation and action, uh, so social justice and enlightenment, and wisdom go hand in hand. And I've been involved in movement work my entire life, uh, literally since I was very, very young. Uh, so for me, this, uh, this is very familiar. Uh, I've been involved with uh, working with uh, police um, abuse for decades. This is uh, incredibly tragic, incredibly painful. Uh, and also, sadly, in America, incredibly normal. And so, uh, in many ways, this has been another, just another in a long, long line of police uh, abuse and death. Uh, what has been very significant about this particular time around, though, is that the intensity of this uprising uh, has demanded attention and that's been fantastic and in a very short period of time we have forced the government to do things that they have never been willing to do in terms of holding police accountable in terms of holding the police department accountable uh, and that has been very inspiring Uh, And honestly, every movement that I've been a part of that has had this level of success uh, has required a tremendous degree of intensity. So, uh, so for those who, who kind of think that, you know, these sorts of protests don't work, um, they're, they actually do work. And it's sad that they have to be this intense. It's very sad, you know, and And that's very much connected to the spiritual life. You know, this is one of the things about spiritual teachings, right? And we see this over and over again in the Bible. You know, God basically says, look, um, you know, live by my laws and everything will go okay. 
And then people turn around and they're like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and, right. then, and then God is like, well, then things are not going to go well, right? And yeah. cities get burned down and people get uh, hurt and sent into exile and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, and then we reset and God says, live by my laws and things are going to go okay. And usually people say, no. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, the book, of, over, uh, the book yeah. of Kings is sort of a comedy routine, right? The list of kings that, that don't follow God's rules and they get smushed and, you know, and then it, it resets. And, you know, the spiritual life says, look, we can either voluntarily engage in activity that is going to lead to justice and peace or we can experience the opposite of those things and we just we just as people tend to be kind of dense right and uh you know in addiction work they talk about you have to hit bottom before you finally maybe get it uh, but that's really true in everything with human beings um yeah. You know, everything that has happened in the last week is, is perfectly preventable. There, there, is, there is nothing that could not have been prevented here uh, had the state responded uh, in, in a way of justice uh, from the very beginning. Right. Uh, but the state doesn't tend to do that. And so this is what has happened. And you know, now the elected officials have kind of gotten it, <laughs> at least temporarily, we'll see. But, yeah. um, and, you know, and so as I said, I mean, we have gotten things that we've been asking for for years and have been completely stonewalled. And these things have happened in the course of a week, which is yeah. really remarkable. And what's happening in Minneapolis right now is sort of, in many ways, a micro- of the macro issues, right? Of mm -hmm. white supremacy and so much of the fact that, I mean, we live on stolen land and I mean, it goes back to the inception right. of our, of our country. And so, so much of what the, what I've been reading in the past years, of course, points me to white supremacy is a white people's problem. Yes. our problem and so it's <laughs> like it's our work to dismantle and I'm aware how big that can feel for people who are sitting in their homes their church pew they're kind of going okay where do I even begin mm -hmm. so as someone who has been doing this work for so long um, where do we begin mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things I guess I would like to say about that is that that notion that this is so big that I, I don't know what to do and I can't begin mm -hmm. is, is part of the denial to even begin. Uh, because the truth of the matter is that it, it's actually easy to begin. You know, th this is something I think we need to get over, this idea that this is yeah. like impossible to begin or it's too big. Uh, you know, I'm a big uh, Wizard of Oz fan. I don't know if you are. You will be as your kids get older, maybe. Right. Uh, you know, and, and when Dorothy gets the instructions to, to go to Oz, 
and to go to the Emerald City, you know, she asks Glinda, she says, well, where do I start? And Glinda's the good witch. And, and Glinda says, well, it's always best to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the teaching of the spiritual life. And then that's also the teaching uh, about this issue. We have to start at the beginning. And the beginning is me. Right? Mm-hmm. I am the beginning of, of anything that I do. Uh, because I'm the only person that I have any uh, control over, any authority over, any ability to engage, really, <laughs> in any substantial way. Yeah. And so, uh, so as a white person, we have to begin with ourselves and really uh, beginning to understand who we are as a white person in America. And to... Uh, really take uh, very seriously that exploration. Um, And, you know, what I see all the time is, uh, and there's a whole now uh, set of information about this. This has become kind of a whole field called white fragility. Uh, There's this thing. uh, So one of the obstacles to uh, any kind of deeper transformation, right, is uh, defensiveness. And it's a defensiveness that arises uh, out of the ego's need to maintain itself. Mm. And so, you know, again, the spiritual life says this is about radical transformation of who we are. And we say, well, I kind of like who I am. Like, I don't, I don't want to be radically transformed. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we have to begin with that, with that deep desire uh, for change. What does whiteness uh look like for you and how are you having conversations about it uh not only in your family but in your church and community yeah and just wondering if if what you're you'll share with us of course i think might help uh those who are listening yeah so i mean this has been a journey for me and it was both uh included in my journey through the academy of looking at my own whiteness uh, spiritually, and then in my work, in, in doctoral work, of looking uh, at whiteness as a theoretical concept, but also and how it impacts religious communities and churches and Christianity and the faith. I guess I would start by saying, as pastors, I really love the way you say this is white people's work and white people need to do it. And, and I 100% agree with that. And my entire life philosophy is now based around that. Um, as pastors, we, the first thing we always say is that everything begins with repentance. Uh, and then we should, you know, have a conversation about race uh, in our churches. Those are the two things I always hear, repent and then have a conversation about race. But my feeling now after, after working on this and looking at it and studying it and, and doing a project within my own church with white folks is that as white people, we can't start with either of those uh, because we don't know what to repent for and we don't know how to have conversations about race without being racist. 
um, and or pursuing the conversation as if it's an abstract idea that is something we're not enmeshed in because we don't imagine ourselves to have race. We imagine ourselves to be non-raced or to be the normative race. Uh, everybody else is raced and we're white uh, or we don't even think about white. We just we just are because white right. is white. White goes unmarked. It's unnamed. It's in the shadows. It's always hidden. That's part of how white supremacy maintains its power is to hide itself in plain sight. Um, so I think I, I always start with this Baldwin quote about how white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. And I think the reason I love that quote is because it's hopeful in that there's, it, it imagines that, that we like, we like in some ways, like everyone that is not white uh, or is racialized as non-white are also trapped in this thing called whiteness. Our, our being trapped is different because the whiteness that we're trapped in gives us privilege and, and advantage. And yet it's still something that we can be released from. We can be liberated from it. We can find our way out of this. And um, just like others can find liberation from the oppression of whiteness. Um, but we can't be liberated from it. We can't find our way out if we don't understand it. And we can't understand it until we look at it very, very closely and, and look at what it's always been from its origins and how it's manifested itself over and over again. And by that, I mean whiteness. Where did whiteness come from? Where did it start? How has it morphed and evolved over time? What does it look like now? How is it continuing to impact people now? So the work that I feel called to is helping white dominant spaces name and identify and confront and divest from um, or um, disavow whiteness would be maybe how I would put it. And I don't know that that is totally and 100% possible, mm -hmm. but I think it's worth doing. Um, in my, so I just kind of, I feel like it's important to define whiteness. A lot of people use the term white supremacy. Yeah. And the reason I feel like it's not as helpful always to use that language is because when we think when white people, moderate white people hear white supremacy, they, they think of uh, Confederate flag wavers, neo-Nazis, Dylan Roof, Char Char um, Charlottesville, you know, yeah. they, that's what we think of. But um, whiteness, the idea of whiteness already carries with it the idea of supremacy. The, the, the creation of whiteness was a concept of supremacy from its start. It was an idea that this particular, um, this, this way of being is better than everybody else. This Anglo-Saxon way of being or this white way of being, this European way of being was supreme, better, uh, and everybody else was under it. And so the way I define whiteness um, theologically in, in my, um, in my work, um, on this, cause you know, you have to write a theology of what you're going to talk about when you do these doctorate degrees. I, I define whiteness as an anti-black epistemology, uh, of domination and control. And theologically for me, it bears the marks of what Paul might describe as a principality or a power. Um, but it has become this principality and power has become and has been always the cultural hegemony of, of the United States. So the dominant ideology of, of American life from the beginning, which is why we have to look at whiteness. And when we do, uh, we don't like what we see. 
We, I mean, we're not going to like this process. I mean, we just need to admit that it's going to take uh, lots of thick skin and um, lots of pain and then taking a break, being stretched outside of our comfort zones and then coming back into our comfort zones um, to reckon with this whiteness. Um, but uh, Leila Saad has this quote, you can't dismantle what you can't see and you can't challenge what you don't understand. So if we're gonna if we're gonna do this work on racism, um, white people have to, to to own not only that it's our work that we have to do with ourselves, but that whiteness is the work that we have to do. That we have to look at our own race, our own racial identity, and its history and its legacy, where it came from, what it looks like, how it's how it's worked, um, and um, that is hard. It's really, really, really hard work. Right and. I think part of what is hard is uh, getting at what we have to repent of, right? I mean, because, right, repentance is about saying, I'm wrong. <laughs> I have dehumanized. I'm, I need to say I'm sorry. I need to seek deep forgiveness and even deeper reconciliation. And, I mean, right. That requires, in my experience, uh, laying down and letting go of everything that has kept me powerful mm. and safe mm -hmm. and secure. Um, and uh, to me, that is what can be really hard. Like when we use the word hard. Uh. Um, because I like being safe and I like being powerful, right? Right, that's right. Um, I like being able to, right? I, I can drive in my car and not be pulled, and, and the taillight be out and not be pulled over. Right. That, that's what I mean by safety. Um, now, of course, all of this, I mean, I, I'm big on intersectionality, right? So I am a woman. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. all of the, like, so all of these things, uh, get, I don't think we can just dissect, right? Um, yeah. From one another. Uh, and I come with white skin. And so, yeah, there's, there's just power and safety that come along with that naturally. And, um, and much, yeah. to our, to, much to our detriment. Um, so, yeah, one of the ways that, Sonia Renee Taylor, who I love uh, very much uh, and follow, uh, who everybody should, because she's so affirming uh, and her movement of radical self-love is, I think, something the church needs desperately. Um, but she, she says that whiteness is the is, creates a hierarchy of um, where, for instance, I'm at the top, right? Because I'm a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male who is economically secure, right? Yeah. Uh, and then below me, right, are others in gradations of hierarchy with, of course, black poor folks on the very bottom. This is the thing we have to understand. So when everybody says, well, I'm not, you know, I, don't, I didn't come from privilege. Yeah, but you're in the hierarchy at a different place than black poor folks, um, particularly black poor women, right? Black poor trans women, yeah, right? Sure. You know, when you start getting the intersectionality, you really see who's at the very, very bottom, uh, whose lives 
you know, society often says don't, doesn't matter, right? And treats them like they don't matter. And so you can find, we can find ourselves in this hierarchy. Maybe we're Latinx, um, but we're economically secure. Maybe we're a white woman. We're, you know, we're oppressed as women by the patriarchy, but we're white. You know, maybe we're a poor white person. So we're somewhere in here. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we're an immigrant, right? And so we find ourselves in this hierarchy and we have to understand that whiteness has created the hierarchy. Whiteness owns the hierarchy and decides where you go in it. Right. And that's one of the reasons why the church or Christian people of faith have to stand against the hierarchy and deconstruct it and name it for what it is as a system of pathology of power and control and domination. And then uh, reject it, find ways to reject it. But you can't, if you can't see it, then you'll, you, the first thing you do is say, well, no, no, I don't come from privilege. Um, and so uh, I think that the, the thing that is so startling about whiteness, when I began to look at it for me and helped me look at it in myself is on the one hand, we have the black community that lives in a constant state of trauma and um, pain and uh, oppression. And that trauma is generational trauma, 400 years of generational um, oppression over and over again. Over here on the white side, we have generational denial. We live in, an, so if there's an emotion of trauma here and pain, the emotion over here is denial. And so our parents, we're in denial, our grandparents were in denial, our great-grandparents were in denial, our great-great-great-grandparents were in denial. Denial is baked into our bones. This is why the first reaction is always denial. It doesn't exist. White privilege doesn't exist. Whiteness doesn't exist, you know. Um, you know, or whiteness is just one race among many. We're just another race. We're all equal, you know. Um, and, and whiteness is not an ethnicity. It's a construction, right? So... I think there's, that's the hardest thing is to work, work with white folks on their denial because that's the first reaction and it's baked into us generationally. And I do it. We all, we all succumb to denial from time to time where we just don't want to look at all the trauma we've caused and our ancestors have caused and that we benefit from currently in the present. We don't want to look at it. Yeah, I was curious about how you understand uh, in this particular congregation your role as pastor, prophet, and priest, uh, to use those three kind yeah. of, kind of yeah. definitions and labels. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in particular, this time of COVID, this time of the, I think, reawakening to white supremacy and how it mm -hmm. kills all of us. Um, and of course, I've come to know you through our dear friend, Joan, forwarding your letters to the congregation mm -hmm. uh, since May 30th, uh, which is when peaceful protests uh, began across the country uh, at just the outrage uh, mm -hmm. at the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think in a minute, I want to read just a couple of uh, parts of those letters, but mm. yeah, let's go back to that. Like prophet, pastor, and priest. Yeah. How do you under, how do you understand those? I think uh, uh, presently, right now, 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to understand. I am, I'm working very hard. I mean, I'm as a, as a, as a, I'm a black male that's leading an all white congregation. And, um, you know, for many years I worked hard to just be a pastor, right. To be an effective and faithful pastor and, um, and prophet and priest. Um, and, uh, um, now I think, um, it is, uh, I, I can't escape, um, the skin that I live in, the body that I'm in, as we talked about earlier. Um, so I'm learning myself right now what it means to be a black male pastor in the Presbyterian denomination, right? To be at a church like this one. But I mean, I'm learning out loud, right? I, there's no like going back into some room and, and like working it out and then coming back out and be like, okay, we got it together. I'm, spend some time in study and reflection. I mean, Sundays keep coming. Things keep happening. Um, the congregation needs a pastor. And, you know, I'm, I wasn't called here to a movement or an idea. I was called here to people, real people with bodies themselves, you know. And um, as much, I think, a mistake that we make sometimes as pastors is trying to be a pastor to people who aren't here yet. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to, um, you know, in all of our imperfection and vulnerability as a community here, I'm, we, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor to the people that are here. So yeah. that's, um, yeah. Yeah, so can I read a couple mm -hmm. of parts uh, of your letter? Um, so, yeah. so the first one is from the letter on May 30th uh, that, you, that was sort of uh, addressing and responding uh, to the congregation after the church property uh, mm -hmm. was damaged uh, because yeah. of, of protests um, in downtown Dallas. So the peaceful voices we hear outside the church house this weekend belong to people that look like me, mm. black men and women that want to exist in this country without constantly looking over our shoulder, worried that today we might die from being too black at the wrong time. Mm. Racism kills people. Only recently have we been able to gather enough video evidence to make that fact irrefutable. And then from your June 6th letter to the congregation, you say, I'm proud to be the first black pastor of the first Presbyterian church of Dallas, mm. but not because I was first. I'm proud because I get to serve a church that went first. Mm. Nonetheless, my presence here doesn't excuse us from the hard work of reconciliation. Mm official statements of support and solidarity with the struggle for justice on behalf of black people is not enough. That sermon has already been preached and the church of Jesus Christ nodded its head in approval. Mm -hmm. Nobody I know is for racism, but many of us are just figuring out that our silence enabled it to flourish. Mm. 
So I'm curious how your church responded to these letters, um, what that has looked like and felt like. And I'm curious what it was like for you to write and communicate these. Uh, I am struck by your writing. I am a writer and I'm curious if you understand uh, writing as, as part of your identity in the world. And that's sort of a tangent, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. Tell us more about what it looks like uh, to sit down and, and write and communicate with your congregation after mm-hmm. May 30th and then on June 6th. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this time of COVID, um, you're distanced from the people. So you, you don't, you don't get all the feedback that you normally would um, in between worship services or after, after a service, you just don't. So I, I mean, Claire, I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, I'm still here. So um, <laughs> um, I, I, the feedback that I did receive, um, I think the, People were grateful for hearing from me, acknowledging like why my voice might be like distinct. You know, um, I needed to say that out loud for myself because, again, I, like I said earlier, I've been working so hard to just be an effective, faithful pastor, not a black pastor. I had to claim that part of my identity in like in between those two letters. Some serious like soul work had to happen for me. Um, and that was the week, I believe. It was like Saturday to Saturday between those two letters. So, um, I um, at the same time, I think um, I think right now we're settling into a reality. Like the, the, this, uh, we're settling into this new reality that this is going to take so like so much work. You know, it's going to take so much work. Um, and that's, that's what frightened me. I think you'll hear that in, in the second letter that you, that you just read. Um, that, that's what scared me the most personally was like, I, you know, I can, we can start this journey together and I'll go with you, but I'm black and you're white. You can quit this at any time when it gets hard, you know, or it's uncomfortable. I mean, you can, you can opt out. Like this is my life. This is what I do every day, 24 hours a day. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's probably what you, um, that was, um, that was but a lot. That, that second letter was infused, I think, with that sentiment. Um, I work out my thoughts on paper, I think. Um, so I don't like um, writing requires that you ship something. Like you actually have to let go of it and put it out there. Mm. And um, I'm a constant tinkerer, right? I like to improve things as they go along. And so that's probably what I dislike most about writing is that you have to let these things go. Mm. <laughs> and and uh People often ask me for my manuscripts, you know, when I'm preaching, I'm like, no, no chance, not happening. You know, you can listen. Right. <laughs> but, Interesting. Yeah. 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 I don't when, in, you know, but I probably, I, the first draft of all my manuscripts probably reads better than it preaches. I'll get, I get around to fixing it. 
fixing it right. But yeah, but I work it out there um, on the paper and um, um, I, you know, I'm not naive in the sense that not everybody here at, at FPC Dallas is, is um, eager uh, to engage in this, in this effort to uh, dismantle structural systemic racism. Not just that, there's some who don't even think it exists. Like it's, it's a problem worth our energy or effort mm-hmm. or time. So I don't know when it's going to come, but uh, yeah, I told a friend, you know, uh, it was a colleague um, at a church that's, you know, about the same size as this one somewhere else in the country. We were talking about engaging, you know, our congregations in, in this, uh, this steady work. And we both admitted that like for the first time ever in our, our uh, careers that we were not certain that like 18 months from now, you know, we would still be a part of the communities we were in. Not because we were like leaving to go somewhere else, but because like we didn't know, we just, we were that going back to the idea of unknowing, putting this adaptive work that must be done, giving it back to the people and saying, we can't do this for you. We have either we do this together or not at all. Right. But there is no, you know, edict that we can, there was sessions going to put out a statement here in the next week or so, but this is soul work on the most fundamental level. I mean, it is for each one of us. And now we know that, you know, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to faithfully follow the way of Jesus Christ without doing this work first. We pause here to encourage you to check out the Upper Room Disciplines, which invites readers to spend unrushed time with God, reading a lectionary-based scripture passage, reflecting on the author's insights and thinking about how to apply the truths from the readings to daily life. This devotional book is published annually and features 53 authors from diverse backgrounds, including some academy faculty, staff, and friends. Disciplines is available in regular and large print, which has some extra white space for note-taking. Visit the Upper Room Bookstore at bookstore.upperroom.org and order your copy of the Upper Room Disciplines 2021 today. Use code ACADEMY20, that's ACADEMY20, at checkout and receive 20% off your copy of Disciplines. Our final best of clips come from Frank Rogers, who is academy faculty and professor at Claremont School of Theology with an emphasis in compassion and resilience. M. Barclay, who is co-founder and executive director of Enfleshed, a nonprofit creating and facilitating resources for spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. Lenicia Rouse, who is a multidisciplinary visual artist 
based in Houston, Texas, and Amy Stroop, who is a singer, songwriter, creator, and longtime friend, who closes our episode as she closed her episode with us back in June, with a song, a blessing, a beautiful sound of hope. Right now, in the midst of this global pandemic, I'm curious what your practices of compassion have to say to it. Uh, What do you think, what is the cry right now or the cries of the earth and how as spiritual leaders are we able to hear and respond in faith and wisdom and love? Yeah, yeah, it's it's an unprecedented time we are in, and um, I mean, and it's you know simultaneously we are becoming so aware of just how really interconnected we are, literally. Right. I mean, around this earth and around this globe, and 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 here in this moment, I mean, as a planet, we are all experiencing and navigating the same thing. It's never happened in history where the attention of the entire planet, whether you're in Zimbabwe or South Korea or in Russia or in Nebraska, we are all in this and keeping our finger on the pulse of what's happening with the virus and, and what, do we, what do we need to do to stay safe? It's like, it's like a, a cosmic consciousness that has just never, that never been experienced like before. And, and we're also can be feeling as isolated as right. we've never felt before. Here we are quarantined um, and separated from um, our routines, uh, separated from our loved ones, separated from the work that gives us meaning, separated from the resources, the food, of, you know, that, that sustain us. Um, so it, it's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily challenging time as well. Um, and yet, so the invitation of compassion, I mean, our approach to compassion is the invitation is always first inward. It's always first to yourself. It's, you know, to, we call it taking yeah. the U-turn and, and having compassion for ourselves and whatever we are experiencing and enduring. And as we're able to tend to our own selves with care and compassion, we'll access the resources for compassion and connection and care for others. But when we are weary and exhausted and overwhelmed or terrified or uh, alone, um, then then we're not gonna have capacities to be able to meet the world with resilience, let alone with, with genuine care and compassion. So for me, the first invitation is, let's be gentle with ourselves. I mean, every, Probably every one of us now is, is is exhausted by this. Every one of us is weary in one way or another. And, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual director. I've been seeing a lot of people during this time. And, and, and the weariness, it's taken multiple forms. I mean, for some, it's been a nice little respite, a little bit of break from a routine and, um, you know, some quiet time and things like that. But, but the isolation's getting old or having to run to the market, you know, uh, only once a week and all of that is starting to get old. For others, it's really severe. 
right? I mean, it's the kinds of things that are being faced, whether it's having children at home that you're homeschooling or trying to care for full time while also navigating a job that is suddenly done online and electronically and not in the ways that we're accustomed to and, and not having a break from, um, from the intensity of being around uh, each other and all of the needs and uh, being separated from our routines and all of that. I mean, that could be extremely disrupting and extremely disorienting and hard to stay grounded, uh, let alone folks who are even encountering it to even a more serious degree. People who are losing their jobs, people who are unsure where the rent money is coming, um, or people who are on the front lines right now. And I have directees that are chaplains in the hospital and nurses um, or, or custodians in institutions. And and what they are enduring and living through um, is, is extraordinarily terrifying. And um, so we're all in one way or another experiencing, and I kind of think it was, it's like a global Lent. I mean, we are all in Lent. We're being stripped away from our routines. We're stripped away from, you know, the basic ways that our needs are usually met. We're face to face with mortality on a daily basis. And, and it brings up stuff. It, it, it is challenging. It is difficult. And so the first invitation of compassion is to, is to turn inward and listen to our own souls crying out in their unique ways, wherever we are in our experience of this. And, and how are we going to uh, find the resilience within, whether that's being sure we take walks or, you know, to tend to our diet or um, uh, get a little quiet time or, or connect with somebody if we have too much quiet time, um, mm. that we really do need to, to, to tend to ourselves with care and compassion in, in the midst of this. Um, that would be a huge, huge invitation. Um, that I'm that I'm noticing. So, what's it been like for your mind, body, and spirit in the midst of COVID, and as we, I think, collectively have awakened or reawakened to the evils of white supremacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've, I've heard the language of we're navigating uh, two pandemics. Um, of course, we've been navigating the pandemic of white supremacy right. for who far, far too long. Um, but tell, yeah. So kind of personally, uh, how has, how has this been for you? This, this mm. particular time and place in our culture, in our world, um, and then how, how is it professionally, and how do mm. the two sort of talk with each other? Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's devastating, right? Um, I, I feel very fortunate that uh, as an introvert, you know, sheltering in place uh, is, I think, a lot easier on me than it is for many other people. Um, and as somebody who works from home, like there's been so much that I am so privileged to not have disrupted. Um, and so I feel deeply grateful for that and deep grief and anger that that's not everybody's experience, right? That everybody doesn't get to um, have that low level of disruption. Um, I have felt such deep fear for certain beloveds in my life. Right now, my home county 
the ICU is at max, you know, I just, it's, there's, yeah, I feel deep anticipatory grief, um, especially right now as we're watching the numbers rise again. Um, And, uh, and I'm so encouraged by the fact of these incredible uprisings taking place all over the country. Like that is so good and so important. Um, And, I find that so hopeful. Uh, And so my own heart, my own mind is just in this, it's just both and constantly, right? Like, I'm so glad things are being unveiled to more and more people, things that have always been with us. um, Mm -hmm. But it's such an apocalyptic time, right? Like the things that have been kept hidden are being, made more clear um and that's good news even if even when that comes with terrible terrible news of destruction Mm -hmm. um and so i i'm just left with such wonderings about what's ahead um and my i have so much fear that things are just gonna go back to a kind of normalcy or a new normalcy (laughs) I think we're just collectively being ushered constantly to um, go back to, or just to accept whatever is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so hard to keep, um, to keep seeing where that's leading us. <laughs> um, and so like anytime there's disruption, I think that's, it's like a, an opening of possibility, but I, it's not a guarantee that we will collectively seize it, right? Yeah. And there are a lot of people showing up right now um, to Black liberation, uh, and I have significant concern that that <laughs> is gonna fade, um, fade quickly, particularly from white people. Um, who either are so new that they, you know, don't have the tools to sustain that work um, or, you know, just the ways that white supremacy teaches us, like, not to be committed enough to keep sticking with the work. Um, So that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little more about how you understand the work of anti-racism and and how it, how you've been able to sustain that work in your own life? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me as a white person, one of the most important sort of shifts um, was coming to recognize uh, the difference between narratives around race that are like, um, oh, racism uh hurts black and brown and indigenous people in these ways and we should do something about it because it's bad, right? Uh, Versus uh, white supremacy (laughs) is this force that has shaped our entire country, has shaped our individual lives, our ability to flourish in very, very different ways to significantly different degrees. But to come to understand the ways that very concretely the ways that white supremacy has shaped my own being and becoming um, and to experience the freedom that comes with unlearning some of those narratives 
uh, has helped me to recognize that like fighting white supremacy is life-giving work for all of us. It is, it, it nourishes me. It, um, it is an experience of, it is an encounter with love, right? With love and beloveds and, um, yeah, that shift just has meant everything, right? Like it's either a, a way of life where love leads from the inside, outside, relationally, everywhere versus a kind of like good, bad approach to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course it's bad, like no question, but what we do with, with those facts, mm-hmm. I think shapes everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the shift right from racism is somehow a problem for black people to the narrative as you're talking about that it's actually our problem as white people. And um, we've created it, we've sustained it. So like now it's ours to unearth, dismantle, tear down. Um, Yeah. 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 Um, And, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, just like we, the, I hear the like pointing to responsibility, right? And, and what you're saying, like we have, we we who are white um, have a deep responsibility to address white supremacy. Um, But even like, as soon as we pick one word, right? Like responsibility Mm -hmm. or, or whatever, it just flattens the truth of what this work is about and what it means to to just be in relationship with each other in the middle of that work to like, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I just, I think anytime narratives about any kind of justice, justice work are, are flat, it's gonna lead to burnout or. So how do we, so give us an example of how to make it not flat. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm, I am still learning so much about how to, um, what the language is instead. Um, There's, there's so much, obviously there's so much that I still have to learn as a white person in this work and will always be learning. Um, But I, but I think it has to do with, um, like my, my, uh, even something like responsibility, like it's, it's so flat for me if I'm just thinking about it as just systems, right. Or just histories that I am responsible to because I'm a white person or just in a a moment, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. That we're collectively having to reckon with. Uh, But when I start thinking about responsibility um, because I am also in relationship uh, with my friend Alicia, uh, and I have a very specific responsibility to her as somebody that I love. Um, that brings a different dynamic than just thinking about I have an obligation to fix, not fix. It's not even, yeah, all the words, all the words. Right, are so right. And limited. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I mean, I talk about how we're here, you know, not 
I mean, the idea of perfect, the idea of yeah. even of getting the the words just right is right. a tool of white supremacy. Yes. And, and it keeps us, I, well, I'll say it for me, it often keeps me and has in the past from saying anything at all. Yes. Right? Yeah. If, yeah. If, yeah. I, if I fear like saying the wrong thing and thinking yeah. that there is this like perfect way to say it and all of this, then I end up just not saying anything and that yeah. ends up being more harmful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm with you in this. I mean, we're, we're making our way um, yeah, yeah. and, and making our way can be a really liberative, beautiful thing. And yeah. I think sometimes as we know, like there's pain and, you know, the growing, the growing pains that come with that. Um, I'm also thinking about sort of uh, both Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Lilla Watson have said similar things a bit about like, we're not free until everyone's free. Right. So sort of that idea of, right, like if we truly believe that we're connected and that um, like I'm only as free as the person who's, you know, still um, tied up, then that I think shifts it a little bit um, yeah. or a lot actually for me in the ways that I show up in the, in the work. So. Yeah. 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 And I think that's such a, a important example for so many reasons, uh, but it's also such a core example of um, the fact that our liberation being bound up with each other is um is an example of a strange, right, a non-dominant um, claim is a product of white supremacy. <laughs> like white supremacy has so shaped um, particularly white Western thinking uh, that we have been falsely led to believe that we are all just these autonomous individual beings, right? And that's the lie in the first place. Right. that we're having to unlearn. Um, and I feel like the dominant, uh, all of the dominant forces would much rather us believe that like the other way around, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, you know, so, so much of the wisdom that's uh, coming from black and brown leaders and preachers and activists and writers is, um, is, is what can heal us from the lies that we are just immersed in because of white supremacy. Yeah. 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 So I guess my justice kind of moral vision is shaped by my spirituality and faith, right? It's informed by it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I do do a lot of work in, in very, in, a, in it's kind of unique ways because as an artist, I think my sphere of influence is art, right? So I'm always thinking through how in my sphere am I doing the work of making this world a more just and equitable place for all. And that is really deeply informed by um, who I understand myself to be as a child of God. Um, and so, yeah, and I think when 
the groups that I work with, like Imagine War and Project Curie, we're always talking about the importance of the imagination um, to do the work that we are doing. Um, to name the places where injustice and um, inequality is real, and then to be about the work of imagining new possibilities. And in that work, art, making art, um, engaging and living with the arts helps to foster and inform um, an imagination that, that is so important to this work, if that makes sense. And um, it is deeply informed by the fact that we are all, I believe like creativity, imagination is just a part of our DNA. Um, it is a gift that we all have. And so in this work, cultivating that imagination, cultivating that creativity, making space for that, um, not only helps us to do that work of creating new systems, dismantling old and creating a new thing, um, is imagining possibilities for our neighborhoods where um, beauty and life and justice and equity is real, like realized in tangible ways. Um, it also helps to ground us and cultivate a resilience and a strength um, to keep going and to do that work. And so we try to make space um, for our team to, to tap into their creativity. We incorporate arts um, often in our gatherings um, as a way of doing Visio Divina to center us before we begin. Um, and we're really intentional about being inclusive in the artists and the work that we share. Um, we are really intentional about women and people of color artists, like really uplifting those imaginations and helping us to engage um, the visions of the world and those stories. And so, yeah, art, that's how I, and then even in my work that I do, I'm always thinking about how to add to the beauty of this world. And I think that's justice work <laughs> in ways, I do. Um, and how James Baldwin's The Creative Process is just one of those essays for me that I constantly return to. And it's a word that reminds me that the role of the artist is to spend that time seeing ourselves. Um, he uses the words like to explore the wilderness within ourselves so that then we can do be about the work of making this world a more human dwelling place in the work that we offer. And so I take that really, really seriously. And that kind of introspection and contemplation work is um, the spiritual work for me, right? And, yeah. and in making the world a more humane and human dwelling place is a justice work um, yeah. for me. And so the two are just always kind of in conversation. I love how you used, when we were talking before, you wrote me something about the dance that they play together because it, mm -hmm. it really is a dance. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how I understand it. And I, and then in just other ways, like art is for me, I want art to be accessible to as many people as possible. And so I am always thinking um, about who is not at the table and how do we create a table for more people to access? 
Um, and that for me is shaped by my, I, as a kid, I loved the communion table. Like that's one aspect of church and um, community. I just, I will never let go of just the profound life that can be found in wisdom and imagination kind of sparking for me that is found at the communion table, that liturgy and even that bodily act of gathering at the table. And so in my studio, I have one of the first things I had placed in my studio is a big table that could seat 12 people because I wanted to host other people in my studio so that they could experience the gift of creativity that I get to do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, um, I also realized like, Art workshops, art spaces, art opportunities are often so expensive that people cannot, not everyone can access that um, and go into those spaces. And so I'm constantly, like I was thinking and partnering with local church community here in town to think of ways of making that table accessible to people. And so what does it look like for us to hold quality, good workshops, art workshops for free or pay what you can? Um, everyone is welcome. You know, like those kind of things where my spiritual line of faith are constantly shaping the practice that I do in my work. And Mm -hmm. um, I love when coffee shop owners or small business owners invite me to help curate art in their space, because that's a space where everyday folks, for the most part, you know, can go. And I love participating in public art projects, um, just because I think that's that beauty kind of bringing in art and creativity um, for all people is just so important and is indeed a justice work. Um, I think just like we hunger for bread and thirst for water, um, we long to create and we hunger um, to engage the arts and um, we hunger to engage beauty and beauty is such a loaded word. Um, But I think when I say that, I mean, to encounter things that are created that bring life and that connect us to um, to a spirit, to, yeah, to a reality that's much larger than ourselves and leaves us, brings us to stillness and awe and wonder. Mm. And um, that yeah. can look, take many different shapes and forms. Mm. Unbelief. 
favorites. Thank you. Love. Love you. Thanks for listening along with us today. And thanks for coming alongside us as fellow listeners, prayers, and companions for love and justice, particularly in this strange and revealing year of 2020. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. Please give a gift to support the work of the Academy today. Visit academy.upperroom.org and click on the orange donation button in the top right-hand corner. This podcast and all of our work of transformation, healing, and love exist because of you and your generosity. Thank you. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, paints, sings, and creates along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.